Our Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 25, verse 19, through chapter 26, verse 5. It's also the text for our sermon as we continue our series in the book of Genesis. Genesis 25 begins speaking of the death of Abraham, which we spoke of a few weeks ago in connection with the death of Sarah. So we're not reading those verses. We're beginning at verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Our New Testament reading is Revelation 19, verses 6 through 10. This was our New Testament reading last week. I accidentally left it in the bulletin, so here it is again. But we're going to stay with it. These are beautiful words in general. The reading of Scripture is a means of grace. We anticipate that with these words, and I'm pretty sure we can weave it into the sermon. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for your blessing upon the reading and preaching of your word. Because we need that blessing, we pray for the presence and work of your Holy Spirit. You know, with perfect wisdom and love, exactly what each of us needs to receive from your word this morning. And so we pray that you would overcome our weakness, our weaknesses as creatures, our weaknesses as sinners, that we might, by your Spirit's power and presence, hear and receive what you have for us from your word. We ask you to do this for us, through this the preaching of your holy word, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the ordinary flow of the historic Christian patterns of worship, a flow that we seek to reflect in our order of worship as a Reformed church, the gospel has been clearly proclaimed. We have been called into God's presence for worship. Already there is good news that we are welcome in the presence of God. We have confessed our sins, and in response to that, we have been assured, assured of our status in Christ. This morning, we have seen baptism Uh, In our assurance of pardon, we read responsively. The way those words are divided out is a way that some scholars think quite possibly reflects an ancient baptismal profession of faith. The key is in the changing back and forth of the, the, uh, the, the, the way those words address us. Some of them, the words are speaking to us. Some of them have the sound of our confession of faith. Many think that's what those words were. So... We have just confessed words of assurance, the gospel of Jesus Christ tied to our baptisms, tied to what God has spoken to us. 
That also is the gospel for our comfort. I want to highlight one thing in particular from our liturgy. In our prayer of confession, we said particular words. Now, we always say particular words. That's not the point here. When we read a prayer of confession, part of the beauty of it is we are saying words that are not just coming to us in the moment. We are saying words quite often that come to us from centuries before us in the history of the church. We are saying words that come to us as a gift. So words that we enter into to be shaped and formed by them. Often we say things that we were not motivated to say in the moment. We're challenged by them, corrected by them, comforted by them. One phrase in particular I want to highlight from this prayer. Speak to each of us the word that we need. I love this phrase. This phrase challenges all of us as we come to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That all of us need the same word. This word comforts me as a minister. As I think of all of the different circumstances represented here as a congregation... All of us need the same word. And so I want to encourage us. I want to exhort us. Sometimes we need to be corrected by this. To be thinking in this way. All of us, we're we're gathered together. We've been scattered through the week. We've been dealing with, with all that we've been dealing with. We come together and in the very act telling each other, we all need this word. And that word is the covenant word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, beautifully this morning in God's providence, as we've had baptism, so we have a text of scripture that I believe in very particular ways focuses us on the way of the covenant. And so we're going to see in very, very simple, broad terms from our text this morning in Genesis 25 and 26, the shape of that one covenant word that we all need. We're going to see first the grace of the covenant, second, the warning of the covenant, and then third, the purpose of the covenant of the covenant. And this will be following through the passage in order. First, the grace of the covenant. As we come to our reading in Genesis 25, beginning at verse 19, we begin a section of Genesis that begins now all that follows from Isaac. And Genesis is structured in this way, structured around the generations. Here we arrive at the generations that follow from Isaac. This, of course, makes sense. We just last week had the account of the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. We're told some numbers. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. And then we learn something new that we have not yet known in the story. Verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. This is a familiar drama in the story of Genesis. It's a description of what would have been Rebekah's suffering as is the case in many cultures, as was the case in a particular way in this culture, this was a real suffering for Rebecca. We are told then of Isaac's prayer in response to that suffering. Now, this is said very briefly, very quickly. In many ways, it's not the the main point, but we should not miss the beauty of this. In the way of the covenant, there is suffering and there is prayer in response to you in the midst of that suffering. And Isaac is portrayed here as a man of prayer, of faithfulness in response to the suffering of his wife. And this says something about their relationship together as well. 
Abraham, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. What's the heading for this section? The grace of the covenant. What is the grace here, first of all? Well, the issue here, as much as we, we should say, and we must say, this is Rebekah's suffering, this is Isaac's faithfulness, praying in that context, the real issue is this is the line of promise. This is the family from whom the Christ has been promised. And so the drama, when there is barrenness in that house, the drama is, will God do what he has promised? Will he one day bring that Savior he said would come? And so when God then grants the prayer, that is the issue. All of it for the sake of Christ. So we could say, from the very beginning, what do we need to hear every Lord's Day? God has, been all, has always been acting from the beginning to bring about your salvation in Christ, and here he is doing that. There's more we can say about this grace of the covenant. It is often difficult. It is often not right away. In the telling of the story, this quick verse, it sounds really simple. Rebecca is suffering. Isaac prays. God answers his prayer. Rebecca conceives. A beautiful picture of God's faithfulness in the way of the covenant. However, we need to do some math in the text. We are told that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebecca. We are also told later on, you might have noticed it, how old was he when the twins are born? He's 60. So we're talking about Rebecca's suffering. This was 20 years of suffering. This was not, hey, I prayed and God answered. Isn't everything great all the time? He prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. Let's remember that. In the grace of the covenant, it's not always on our timeline, not always when we would desire to see it, and that has always been the case as well. God graciously grants children the the. The, or a child, children, she doesn't really know for sure yet. God grants what Isaac was praying for. But now there is more suffering, and this is so striking. I, you know, in some ways you feel like if you've grown up Christian, you feel like you've heard this story a gazillion times. I don't remember this part. Verse 22. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? And you notice the footnote there, the Hebrew idiom. Now, the English translation is fine. It's telling us what this, how this probably would carry over into English. But the, the literal idiom, the way she was speaking, expressing this was, why do I live? That the struggle, the conflict between whatever's happening in her womb was so volatile, so violent, that it led her to cry out something like, what is the point to my life? Why do I have to deal with this? To the point where she goes to the Lord to inquire. And quite likely, the language here suggests she goes to a prophet. Someone who God had chosen to speak his word at that time. The language of went to inquire of the Lord is the kind of phrase used, used elsewhere for that sort of thing. Now, we have to go on with to read, an oracle is then given. And I want you to think of this with the mysteriousness of an oracle. The way that word sounds. A prophet speaks this promise. But this also is suffering being described for Rebecca. 
something going on inside of her so intense and dramatic that she is driven to cry out and to go then to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. She is told there will be two nations. Even here, it's not totally clear this means she has twins. When when this is said to her, maybe she concluded that. We don't know for sure. We find that out later in verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins. And that suggests that's when the twinness was discovered. And so this oracle is very mysterious, what is going on. And the key to it is the statement, the, the surprise, the twist in it, is the statement, the older shall serve the younger. Well, if it is twins, what does older and younger mean? Well, it means there's something about the order in which they are born. Well, Esau is born. He comes out all red, all his body like a hairy cloak. The name Esau, later called Edom, the people who come from him called Edom, is like the Hebrew, suggesting he's named for his redness. All right. Then Jacob is born after Esau. He's not Jacob yet. He's named Jacob on the basis of what happens. He is grasping Esau's heel as he is being born. And he's named Jacob, the word Jacob, hinting at this grasping after Esau. So this oracle has now set up the rest of the story. There will be conflict between Esau and Jacob. The promise is that though Esau is born first, he is the firstborn, the one who has the birthright, the rights of being the firstborn, he will serve Jacob. And this is a hinting at Jacob is the line of promise to really home in on what is going on. And that sets up the rest of the story, the division between them, the favoritism described in verse 28. Now, why are we calling this the grace of the covenant? The point is simply this. This is God choosing Jacob and his family to be the line of promise. It is God choosing Jacob in the same way he chose Isaac, the same way he chose Abraham, to be the line of promise through whom the Messiah would come. And the point is simply this. That choosing of Jacob, that making him to be the line of promise, is all of God's grace. So that Israel, and I I know at this point there are so many questions, so many theological things we could explore. We address lots of these questions when we're studying the catechism, pulling together many different passages of scripture. The thing I want you to home in on is this. The grace of God at work in calling Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob to be his covenant people. The payoff for Israel later on was that they would look back at this moment and say, Our status as belonging to the Lord is all of grace. Our status as having faith in the Lord, the good life that the Lord gives, is not something we can take pride in. It is all a gift of God's grace. This is the point the Apostle Paul will make in Romans 9. He will take this passage and apply it to the church and say, what this passage means is it is not of works. It is not your doing. That your being drawn into God's presence, part of God's people, part of his covenant people, is all from beginning to end a gracious gift. There's an interesting detail given in the text uh, in verse 20. We are told that Rebekah was an Aramean. Why are we told this? Well, we don't know for sure. 
But it reminds us of something. That later on in Deuteronomy chapter 26, in, well, I think it's verse 5, but it's Deuteronomy 26. It's talking about the feast of first fruits. And Moses tells Israel, when you bring your offering for the feast of first fruits, after you have entered the promised land, you are to recount the story of how you got here. And the point of the story is that it's all of grace. And the story begins with Israel being called to say, my father was a wandering Aramean. Now, what's the point to this? Israel, when it comes down to what makes you who you are versus anyone else, humanly speaking, you are nobody. You come from a family of wandering Arameans. What makes you who you are? God's love. God's grace. You can point to nothing in yourself that makes you who you are. So that in Deuteronomy 6 and 7, when Moses is telling Israel about God having chosen them, he says, it's not because you're so great. It's not because you're more in number. Not because you are greater than others. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. He says, it is because the Lord loves you that he has loved you and set his love upon you. And there's this beautiful phrasing of God, or Moses saying, there's no deeper source than love. You can't go further back than the love. God loves you because he loves you. And Israel would trace that confidence in who they are back through this story of Jacob. That the choosing of them, the drawing of them to God's self is purely of love and grace. That the message of the older shall serve the younger. I'm going to boil it down theologically. Is that God loves you because he loves you. Nothing in you has earned it. Nothing in you has deserved it. It is all of God's grace. Brothers and sisters, I want to stay on this point for a few moments. We have all manner of ways, theologically, practically, in our experience of the Christian life, ways we talk about things to make that less clear than it is to make it more complicated, to not let that just speak to us directly. Any number of us right now may very well have a particular something. I don't know what it is. A particular something that you are putting in between God saying that and it getting to you. Something you've done, something you've experienced, something that's been done to you, something that you've seen the consequences of, something you know you did that was wrong and you know it's forgiven, but you see the consequences of it and it's overwhelming. The announcement of God's grace to you is in no way dependent on you. It is God's promise announced and declared with no deeper foundation than his love. His unchanging, steadfast love for you. And what he calls you to do in response to that is simply look to and rest in that promise. Our assurance of pardon. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Do you hear the echoes? Of Deuteronomy 7, he loves you because he loves you. The echoes of the very shape of the story in Genesis 25, that God draws his people to himself as a gift of his grace. 
Because of the love with which he loved you, even when you were dead in your sins, he has made you alive with Christ. And that is a promise announced. I hope, I pray, that you will that you will experience that by God's acting, by God's grace, by the Spirit acting as cutting through whatever barrier you're putting in between it to simply be addressing you. Salvation in Christ, beginning, middle, and end, is all of grace. Second, the warning of the covenant. This oracle is, sees, announces, proclaims that there is going to be a divide in the covenant home. It's hinted at in verse 28, verses 27 and 28, the favoritism of Isaac and Rebekah. And then we have the account of Esau selling his birthright. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And the word exhausted here is very dramatic. Esau is being portrayed as being dramatic. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. He is saying, I am so hungry I'm going to die. And the redness of the stew is being emphasized. He basically says that red stuff right there. I need that. I'm dying of starvation and hunger. I want the red stuff. And as Gordon Wenham points out, Esau's language of I am exhausted, basically to the point of death, is totally contradicted by just how many words he uses, he manages to use while talking to Jacob. Jacob, on the other hand, not exhausted to being afraid, you know, so, so, so hungry he's going to die, Jacob is very terse. He is very focused. There's something he's after. He is the grasper, after all, in his name. The one following the birth of Esau, grasping Esau's heel. So Jacob says, sell me your birthright now. And sell me your birthright now is in English terse, in Hebrew it is terse. And it is in contrast with what Esau is saying. What is the birthright? This is simply all the rights, privileges, and ancient culture that came with being the firstborn. It also has all the covenantal connotations of the spiritual promises, spiritual duties, perhaps even the expectation of being the one who is the, of the line of promise. There is all of the earthly benefits of it. There's also covenantal spiritual meaning and significance to it. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Again, lots of words. And then... Notice, again, in contrast, in the, the way the, the Hebrew story is told, Jacob's focused terseness. Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. What has happened here? Well, the key to assessing the story, neither of them look particularly good. Right, so we, we should be clear up front here about Jacob. I, okay, so as, as we go through the, the next chapters about the life of Jacob, we want to be avoiding ways of telling the story that are always as hard on them as possible so you can get a moral lesson out. 
You know, so you really portray, look how bad Jacob was, don't be like Jacob. Okay, we don't want to do that. But we also don't want to veer the other way and just make, you know, whitewash everything. When your brother comes in and says, I'm so hungry, I'm going to die, you probably should just give him some food and not wheel and deal. So this is a natural instinct we have. It's an instinct that is faithful to the scriptures. I don't want to deny any of that, all right? Jacob does not look good here. But that is not the focus of the text. And that is the key. The text tells us what the issue is. The narrator gives us an assessment. Here is what went wrong. The end of verse 34, thus Esau despised his birthright. And the narrator so often actually does not give us assessments like that. And that's one of the signs in the text of scripture. We have to be careful about assuming the point even is at all something about how we should live. Right? Sometimes we impose that on the text. But here, the passage clearly assesses. Esau despised his birthright. And that assessment means, it tells us, that is part of the message. So, we have being emphasized in the way of the covenant. It is all of God's grace. It is all of God's doing. But we also have being emphasized that that way of the covenant, those promises God gives, call for the response of faith. And the text so often warns us of what the failure to respond in faith looks like. What the path of destruction looks like. What the path of turning away from that way of faith in God's promises. And Esau here is a picture of that. We can say in very simple terms, and I, I know this can sound trite, but I don't want to make it complicated to make it not sound trite, just it's not trite. What has Esau done? He has pursued his physical appetites instead of that which ultimately matters spiritually. He has pursued physical desire instead of all of the spiritual meaning of the birthright God had given to him. And his pursuit of that spiritual, of that physical appetite was itself a rejection of that spiritual thing. He despised his birthright. This stands as a warning for the covenant people of God in all times and all places. And the assessment, again, why, why are we confident saying this? Because of that end of verse 34, thus Esau despised his birthright. If we let ourselves dwell on this as a warning, some more starts to jump out to us. Esau says in his moment of most desperate desire, give me that red stuff. And by red stuff, he's counting on meat, right? This is, this is the imagery, the language of what the stew is. What does he end up with? Now look, some of you might be fans of lentils. I actually like lentils quite a bit. But if you're anticipating beef stew and you end up with lentils, you didn't get what you were anticipating. And the picture of the text is Esau in this moment of desperate physical appetite, sacrifices everything for this thing that will give him pleasure. And yes, he gets lentils and bread and he goes his way and now he has lost his birthright. Now perhaps you think I'm drawing this overly directly. No, the book of Hebrews uses this passage in this very way to warn the church of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. 
And then these moral exhortations, strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And then these words, that no one be, is sexually immoral, Im, <laughs> that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Wow, what a leap we say to being sexually immoral and unholy like Esau. Now, wait a minute, though. Is that a leap? It is the very same thing. A pursuing physical appetite in the path of rejecting the spiritual path that God has shown us that is good. And notice how in both circumstances, whether it be the beef stew or whether it be sexuality, it is a good gift of God, meant to be enjoyed, meant to be delighted in, that is twisted and distorted, that is in fact destroyed when it is pursued as an ultimate thing, when it is pursued in rejection of that, what God, that which God has shown us and revealed to us. And so the warning here, the book of Hebrews says, stands for the covenant people of all times and all places. Beware that we are full of good desires that God has given us, that when they run amok, when they are made ultimate, when they are made the main thing, when they refuse to follow what God has said is the life that is good, are destructive. And you can go all the way down to the details of that red stuff, and then it's lentils. This is how it will always go. If you grasp the vapor as though it is the ultimate thing, it will slip through your fingers. It will not satisfy. And every one of us has something Something of this life that is good, but that we are tempted. We are tempted to cling to it, to grasp after it, to at times stare down that path of destruction by which we would throw everything away to pursue it. And this text must warn us that there is real danger. But what then is our answer? You say, all right, I feel the conviction. I feel the warning. What do I do? What have we been saying all morning? Look to the grace of God in Christ. That the answer, when you feel the warning, when there's that thing of this life you're tempted to grasp after, the answer is to look to the grace of God in Christ. And so we see thirdly this morning the purpose of the covenant. There is the clear announcement of grace. It is God's doing beginning, middle to end. There is the warning. This requires the response of faith and be warned of the, the destruction that follows when we reject that way of faith. What is the solution then? To look to God's covenant grace and we see in this the purpose of that covenant. In Genesis 26 verses 1 through 5, God is renewing for Isaac the promises he gave to Abraham. In that renewal, he is promising Isaac the land. He's promising him that he will be many descendants. And there's an amplifying, a continue to amplify how he says this. Verse 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. So God is renewing the promise to Abraham for Isaac. And then this, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is what I want to spend the remainder of our time together on this morning. There is a theme beginning, well not beginning, continuing to emerge in the book of Genesis that by its repetition becomes more and more of a main point, we realize. And by the way, one of the difficult things when you're 
for preaching a text or a theme like that is which text to bring it up in because it's in all of them we can't preach it all the time well i want to bring it up now when the promise is repeated to isaac here's the theme emerging it is the wideness the scope of god's grace in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed This is what God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God repeats that promise here to Isaac. And then we realize throughout the account, there have been stories emphasizing this wideness. People outside Israel, through whom God's grace has already reached. Um, Abimelech, back in the story with Abraham, we think of Melchizedek. We think of the, the scope of the text so often being the nations. Here is the wideness of God's grace. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Some of us, maybe a lot of us, I'm actually not sure. You have to decide for yourself. Some of us, back at that Jacob and Esau bit, the older will serve the younger. And when I went to the point of alluding to Romans chapter 9 and said that's about God's grace and salvation, that's not of our works, some of us tailspin out into questions about the narrowness of God's grace. Who's in? Who's out? Some of us went into questions about how does all that work out? How do I make sense of that? Where am I in this? In the context of the story in which the choosing of Jacob seems to, I mean, maybe if you think that way, suggest a kind of narrowness, a kind of particularity that that makes us maybe worry about in and out and all of these kinds of things. In that moment of the, the account where there is a focusing on Isaac, a focusing, a narrowing on Jacob, the promise given as the point to that focusing is that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It is the bigness of it, the wideness of it, the worldwide scope of the purposes of God's grace. We must hear the narrowing of God's choosing as always being for the sake of all the nations of the world. Because God's choosing Jacob was not just about Jacob. It was ultimately for the sake of the Christ who would come from him. And the Christ who would come from Jacob's line would then say, go make disciples of all nations. And this is a theme that begins to emerge more and more and more that that we neglect. And we neglect it to our hurt. To our hurt for our own personal experience of God's grace and to the hurt of the mission of the church. That the overall theme and trajectory of Scripture is the wideness and the broadness and the bigness of God working to save all of the nations of the world. And so I want to warn you from this text with those words about all nations, I want to warn you against the doctrines of God's stinginess. They are false. Somehow, we manage to turn the doctrines of grace, the sovereignty of God and salvation, the whole point of which is that no sin is too great for God's grace to chase you down. Somehow, we turn the doctrines of grace into the doctrines of God's stinginess. The scriptures simply do not speak this way. I have been challenged recently by Reformed theologians of the last couple centuries who, in ways that we so often neglect, spoke of the wideness of God's mercy and of it being based on precisely these Reformed doctrines of the grace of God in salvation. Reformed theologians saying things like, at the end of the story, the vast great majority of humanity will be saved. 
that the trajectory of Scripture, the tone of Scripture, the way it speaks, gives us every reason to expect and anticipate exactly that kind of outcome. And it begins here in the book of Genesis, where the good creator has said, I am rescuing my good creation, and his focusing is for the sake of the nations. Beware the doctrines of God's stinginess. They are a lie. They are, at times, in particular times of trial and struggle in the Christian life, they are demonic. That they would cause us to fear whether God's grace is enough for us, whether it is for us, whether it gets to us, that it would cause us to narrow and limit what God is doing. This needs to shape the mission of the church, that our tone and posture in the world is that we are the people who exist as the result of God keeping this promise to Isaac to bless all nations of the world. That we are the people who exist because the one who is the light of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ, in fulfillment of these words, calls us to be the light of the world. So we understand our very presence to be for the sake of those around us. And I could talk a lot longer about that vision for how it shapes the church's mission but here's actually what I want to talk about. When we don't get that right, when we are burdened by the doctrines of God's stinginess when it comes to how we view the world, where that most damages us is how we are able or not able to hear God's grace speaking to us. Let this broadness, wideness of God's grace as it is announced to Isaac, let this form your willingness to just rest in what God's word has said to you. Let this form your willingness to not need to solve everything, to figure everything out, to have every possible answer, but to simply rest in the broadness of the very heart and character of God. Brothers and sisters, the world is a dark place. Darkness is real. And it is often very, very frightening. We need the light of this good news. That the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that light that shines through our Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's ancient promise that through his chosen people, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In the midst of the darkness, this is what you need. Sister, brother, rest. And in the midst of the darkness, this is what the world needs. A people, a gathered church, formed by this good news as light in the darkness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.